Hello, you are listening to the Weird Learning Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Tracy Dix and Dr. Alex Patel. Today's episode is called The Right Way to Reflect, Unlocking the Potential of Reflective Writing Assignments. So Alex, what sparked this topic for today? Well, we know that it's something that a lot of people uh, find very, very difficult to do. I know we see a lot of students who don't know how to get started with reflective writing for their assignments. And actually, usually the people who are setting the assignments don't have um, a particularly clear idea of what reflection is. So it makes it very hard for them to explain to other people. However, I'm lucky enough to have had to go through the whole uh, reflective writing process when I was training to be a secondary school teacher. So you have to look at, you know, your experience in the classroom, reflect on it, think about how you felt, a bit more detail than that, but, um, and then contrast it to kind of theories and try and draw in um, a deeper understanding based on research to analyze what actually happened in the session and then build on that. Yeah, so reflective writing was one of the topics that was recently requested by some students we ran a focus group with. And as we're always aiming to please, this is why we are addressing it now. And in fact, we are running a masterclass on reflective writing on the 18th of May, isn't it? That's a, I believe that's a Thursday at 6 p.m. So 18th of May at 6 p.m. we're running a masterclass on reflective writing. And so this is to sort of give a little taster as to why we think it's important and why students have to do them and how you can unlock the potential of reflective writing beyond, you know, having to jump through a hoop. So it's not just an assessment that you have to pass. What a drag. But actually, how do you use it to your advantage so it can benefit you your career and later on in life. Yes. Um, so reflective writing. Um, so it's really broken down into a couple of different things. The reflection part where you actually, you know, take a step back and think, this is the situation, my experience, and actually do the reflection part of it where you break that down, you analyze it, you pull out uh, the key ideas or issues that you're reflecting on, and then communicating it, which is also really challenging. And Alex, you were saying that um, you initially had to do it when you were training to be a secondary school teacher. Mm. And we have found um, from coaching students that it's commonly, yeah, it's um, students who are training, who are doing the teacher training, who have to do reflective writing assignments. But also it's very common in the healthcare healthcare sciences, I suppose. But it's a particular challenge to these students because being from a science background, many kind of science students are quite unaccustomed to academic writing in the first place. And as we all know, you know, there are certain kind of expectations and rules that are involved with academic writing that these students first have to master when they come to university. And just as, you know, they're trying to get their heads around, you know, what are the expectations of academic writing? What are the conventions? What are the styles? What can I do and not do? They get told that they need to do a reflective writing assignment. And much of the basic kind of advice around that is completely different from academic writing in the sense that 
while all of a sudden you can you should be writing in the first person because this is about your own experience whereas that's considered quite a no-no you're meant to be writing the third person to come across as objective in academic writing so students are often really quite confused quite conflicted and uncertain as to what to do and how to go about it and in consultations, I've certainly had students kind of say to me, okay, so if I do this, or what sentence do I have to change? And how can I reword it? And does this mean I'm going to pass now? So they're very much seeing it as an obstacle to them actually qualifying and being able to practice their chosen profession. So, you know, I just want to be a teacher now. Can I can I just pass, graduate and become a teacher and get over this reflective writing nonsense is often the attitude. And it's the same with, you know, midwifery students, you know, students kind of doing their ward rounds in medicine and disciplines like that. Mm. So there is another area where people often use reflection, and that's something that applies to all students, and that's in their career development. So you will be expected to reflect on your experience in certain jobs and perhaps group working activities and be able to pull out the transferable employability skills and to be able to articulate those, which is very difficult. So you may have come across uh, systems like STAR, I think is one of them, situation, uh, task, action. Result. Result. Yes, ideally. <laughs> well, there's um, always a result. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but it's, it's you know, really quite a challenge to learn how to do that and to do it in, you know, a way that really makes you sound like the person they want to hire. And mm-hmm. so, of course, you've got that reflection part, but then there's the communication. So, That might be communicating through a CV, you know, how do you really make your special skills stand out uh, beyond other people's? But it might also be in the interview. So now to connect the dots, then what we were talking about earlier on in this episode was. So the thing is that many students see reflective writing assignments as an isolated task. And it's a bit of a bore and it's something they just have to get through. But the reality is it's going to come back and haunt you again at some point. No, I'm, I'm kind of joking. So what I mean is, so connecting the dots now to what Alex has been saying about career development. Now, when you are asked to produce a reflective writing assignment, it's usually to reflect on something that you're doing as part of your vocation. So if you're training to be a teacher, you'll be asked to reflect on a classroom session that you've taught, for example. Or if you're training to become a midwife, you'll be asked to reflect on a shift and how that shift went. And, you know, and the courses that you're studying are related to the career that you want to undertake upon graduation. So connecting the dots, then it is a kind of cyclical process that is very, very beneficial And very fruitful, you know, if you were to get good at reflective exercises and reflecting on your own practice, your own performance, but also as an individual, you know, what do you want to get out of your actions? What are the results as a consequence of your actions? And how can you change the results in future should you want to? So what kind of how would you adapt the actions in order to get different, more positive, perhaps, results. 
Yes. Um, so I'm going to move on to the next slide. Okay. So I'm now going to throw a bit of a wild card in. I think that reflection is something that people often have to do at various different points in their life, far beyond, you know, thinking about employability skills or demonstrating, you know, evidence of good practice. I think that a lot of things like meditation and forms of counselling are, in essence, different ways of reflection. I so think you're right. One example is kind of psychodynamic therapy. But the idea that, you know, you need to look at what's going on in your behaviour if you react really strongly to something and it's completely out of proportion, then you can reflect or explore what the trigger was and try and work out how to avoid it that affecting you in the same way again in the future. Mm. So now I was sort of joking about how if you don't learn how to reflect now, if you don't kind of learn good sort of reflective practices now, they're going to come back and haunt you in the future. It was sort of a joke, but not really, because Alex and I have both had to, well, actually, no, we've both wanted to reflect quite deeply on our personal circumstances, our lives, and where we were at because of situations that were happening around us. So, for example, about two years ago, the university that we worked for was going was undergoing a restructuring ex exercise. So that was kind of one trigger for us. And you will probably find as you go through life, I mean, we've lived a fairly long time now, but as you go through life, things will kind of happen around you and to you that will just make you want to evaluate how your life is going. And perhaps you might choose to pivot and take a different direction. It can also be a really useful way of dealing with feelings that have come up. If you can kind of think through that situation, almost relive some of those emotions again, sometimes it does depend very much on, you know, your own personal preferences. But just to kind of wrap this up. So in terms of these images that you can see here, these are all examples of reflections that I've put together to help kind of work out what I wanted in life and, you know, how to deal with certain emotions and lack of self-confidence and all sorts of things. And it is really useful for some people. Imposter syndrome is quite a big one, isn't it? Mm. I, can I can I quickly draw attention to the dragon image, please, Alex? So Alex created a lovely piece of art for me. And it was my Christmas present one year. And so as part of the reflective exercise, actually, it can be quite useful to think about what other people, what impressions and things and compliments and praise, let's keep it positive, other people have said about you. And one of the things that Alex has said about me, for example, you can see on this image, it, it says, where bearded men see Archaeopteryx bones, you help me see here there be dragons. And one of the things that Alex has always said about me is that I ask interesting questions. It's not something that would have occurred to me on a conscious level. So it can be interesting to think about what people around you are saying as part of your reflection. But obviously, you do want to kind of pick carefully 
you know, positive people who have your back as opposed to, you know, there are going to be some salty people out there who just resent like your victories in life and stuff like that. You don't necessarily want to listen to those people. So do be kind of quite tactical about how you go about this. Yeah, but that's exactly it. Um, it's being critical. It's looking at different perspectives, but also being critical about those. And that includes your own perspective, you know, how you tend to feel about yourself. You know, can you take compliments or do you always try and kind of fob them off? And mm. are you too critical of yourself and too negative? Yes, because I so I've just been listening to one of my audiobooks and it was talking about imposter syndrome and how so particularly with women, we're not very good at taking compliments. And so, for example, the author says that, you know, even when Maya Angelou had won her multiple awards for her amazing writing, we all know she's an amazing writer. She kept talking about imposter syndrome and how she believed she would be found out someday and that you know, people would just hate her next piece of work. Yep. So it affects the best of us. I mean, it, Michelle Obama has also talked about imposter syndrome, you know, to not just reflect on the positives, but also think about how you can kind of lift yourself up and how you're perhaps underselling yourself in some way. Yeah, yeah. So one of my uh, bits of wisdom that I, you know, it's like a bit like an epiphany <laughs> came to me through this kind of process is that, the most important person's kind of opinion of what I'm like is my own. Because everyone around me can be saying, you're absolutely awesome. But if I am negative and down on myself, um, I won't believe them. You say, oh, no, they're saying that they want something or, you know, they're deluded. So, yeah, my own opinion and my, how I value my own worth is the most important thing for me. And that's done a lot for my self-esteem. I think that's absolutely true. But at the same time, why is it that very often people tend to internalize the negative? You know, the kind of negative feedback that we get, we internalize it. We dwell on it a lot longer than the positive feedback. With the positive feedback, you know, many of us are kind of like, ah, no, you're just making it up. Or, no, you're just saying that to be nice. Whereas, you know, if someone has perhaps slightly negative feedback or constructive criticism about your work we might take it a lot harder and start going oh so someone said such and such did they actually mean it was really really bad but they're just dressing it up to be a bit polite so I wouldn't take it too too much to heart so I I don't know perhaps this is just our own feelings but and perhaps dear listener you are the best person to tell us whether this is resonating with you or if you have a completely different perspective It'd be really good to hear your views mm -hmm. on how you respond to other people's feedback and how you ref how you reflect on it. Yeah. So in short, we really believe that reflection is a very powerful tool. One thing I've learned about it is that it's very difficult because it is so powerful. I almost tend to think that, you know, your mind, your subconscious has uh, defense mechanisms that mean it's difficult to pull apart an experience and to really work out why something happened, why you re responded in such a way. But the harder it is, probably the more beneficial it's going to be. And the it good is. thing is, it's something that gets easier and easier with practice. 
the other thing is it's it's incredibly difficult to be objective about your own thoughts and about the you know your own communication style your own behavior it's very difficult to think outside of it and one example is so now Alex and I have been colleagues for what five years maybe a little bit longer than that and I, I thought longer I think lo- I think longer actually I just, maybe is that a good thing or not <laughs> it's not a bad thing I mean we're still talking to each other so okay so we've been colleagues for over five years now um and as you can see we're working very closely together and I can safely say that I have not lived in someone's brain as much as I do with Alex oh wow <laughs> and yes not even my own husband just because of the nature of this partnership and and the thing I've learned is that human brains are incredibly different <laughs> so and that's really interesting because what you would assume to kind of be truth, your reality and all of these things might be so far removed from someone else's experience that it's like not even on their radar or it's not, you know, they're, they're just like, what are you talking about? It's super, super interesting. But I think that's also why it's, you know, I think it's important to reflect on alternative perspectives and to kind of think of the possibilities beyond the scope of your own experience and your own knowledge. Definitely. One of the things I like to try and do is, you know, if somebody's introducing an idea where I straight away kind of think, oh, no, no, fit in with how I see the world. I like to try and, you know, just suspend my criticism and disbelief and try it on for a little bit kind of play around with the idea and then come to some kind of conclusion sometimes I I do that better than others (laughs) I think that's a really good approach to take actually I I mean so both of us are quite open-minded or at least we like to think we're open-minded and I think the the sort of main takeaway when it comes to different ways of you know, doing things is to try on and see how it works for you. Not everything will, and that's fine. At least you've tried it. Yeah. So shall we? We were going to just talk about a couple of reflective models, weren't we? Yes. Would you like to introduce this one? I can. (laughs) So this, apparently, is Rolf's reflective model. It's attributed to Rolf, but et al. suggests that there might be other people who have collaborated on it as well. I am not that familiar with the history. Perhaps Alex is and can tell us a little bit more about it. But it's a really simple model. And I guess the thing with simplicity is it it's open to a lot of possibilities, but it does also mean that perhaps you need to refine this approach by asking more defined and specific questions. Yeah, I think for me, this looks too simple. I would like a bit more of a structure or, you know, questions which challenge me a bit more because it's very easy to look at this one and kind of say, what? Well, I was in a classroom, kids all misbehaved, start throwing chairs at each other. So what? That wasn't good. Now what? Avoid going into that classroom again. (laughs) Just doing it on a really kind of superficial level. Yeah. So some of the other approaches I, I find are useful in the detail they go into. Shall we go on to the next one? Yes, I think you've I think you have the <laughs> space bar yes. of power. Yes. Okay. So this one is by David Kolb. 
And he's very famous for, what is it, the learning styles, the visual, I don't know, auditory, kinesthetic type things. So now, it's, the it's sorry, it's the experiential stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I think so. What we've got up here is a bit different. It's the experiential things, like you said. But I'm sure many of you will have come across learning styles, which isn't something that people believe in quite as much nowadays. But so I by, think that's probably one for another session. So by learning styles, what do you mean? Was that the auditory, learning by listening, yeah. learning by kinesthetic, that's learning by doing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the idea is that each person has a preference for learning in a certain way. And that's that's come about because of how the brain is thought to be divided up into different areas. So you've got visual at the back, you've got auditory around near where the ears are. <laughs> and, Funny and that. those types of yeah, strange that, yeah. Yeah. But that was, you know, quite a simplistic way of looking at things. And nowadays people tend to think that if you're trying to learn about images, paintings, you will learn better visually. If you're trying to learn how to do an experiment, you will learn better by doing it so kinesthetically. And it's not really a case that some people are just visual learners and they can't read a book and learn information from a book, because I'm pretty sure all of you out there will be able to you know, both look at pictures and figures and read some text. Be a bit difficult to go to university without being able to learn from a book. Yeah, yeah. But the learning styles thing is still very popular and you will hear it being talked about a lot. I think we might have to do a session on it at some point. Yes, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps yeah. in a couple of weeks. We've got quite a few things to cover in the coming weeks, though, haven't we? So. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. So Kolb, very well known, basically. So he also did some work around the learning cycle. And it's the idea that, you know, you've got this nice red box at the top here. Uh, somebody has an experience. In psychology, they call it a concrete experience because concrete is something that's in front of you. It's there. It's solid. <laughs> concrete. And you then go through some kind of reflective process or you need to. It might not be that conscious, but you need to have thought back over that experience and what happened. And then there's this idea that you will take whatever happened and then pull out an abstract kind of principle or a rule or a thought or an idea about what's happened during that experience. And then that leads you to then change the way you approach that situation and to do something in a different way. So it might be a bit like, you know, positive feedback type of cycle where it seems to have gone well, you you know, you're, you're happy with what happened. So you think, okay, that is a system that works. I will do that again. So the next time you repeat what you're doing, perhaps do it a bit more enthusiastically. But the flip side is, go on. I'm very intrigued that, you know, you're talking about concrete experience, something that definitely happened is linked to feeling. And so looking at the kind of verbs, I suppose, they are verbs. Huh? Are they verbs or are they edge? No, they're verbs. They're verbs. definitely verbs. <laughs> I always, so three-time English graduate here always gets confused between verbs and adjectives because I'm not a linguist. But I almost sort of feel like, and here's where I am 
being a little bit disruptive. You know, because watching is linked to reflective observation and thinking is linked to abstract conceptualization and doing to experimentation, I sort of feel as if Kolb didn't know what's about feeling and sort of just shoved it there with concrete experience. Mm. I suppose he could have said experiencing, but do you think, I suppose we experience things in different ways, like watching, thinking, and doing. So perhaps he thought a lot harder about this learning cycle than I give him credit for. Well, I I, I like the cycle. Um but I, yeah, I'm a bit confused about the feeling, watching, thinking, doing, because, you know, you might watch the experience, you, you know, you can kind of swap these all around and it would still kind of work. Yeah, I think that's where my confusion came from. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably a tie in from the learning styles. You know, he wanted to put that in there. <laughs> but the bit that appeals to me is that... Um, this is very much like almost a <laughs> homeostasis, homeostatic uh, system in the body. So you have sensors, receptors throughout your body. Uh, so, for example, let's go with thermoregulation. So how the body controls how hot you are. So if the sensor detects that you're too hot, it then brings about a change to cool you down your what is it? Your capillaries dilate and your blood goes to the surface of your skin. It cools you down. It then looks, well, you know, uh, has feedback as to whether that worked. And if it didn't work, then it would uh, increase those actions again. Whereas if it was successful and the body cooled down, it would feed that back in and trigger a different action. It's so useful to have a biologist and a neurobiologist as a friend, because when you talked about thermoregulation, I was just thinking about how it gets cold in the room that I'm sitting in and the heater comes off. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's that kind of thing. And sometimes it's good to have someone who is good at breaking things down in simple terms <laughs> rather than using homeostasis. When you did that, I was like, oh, my God, maybe now might be time for me to run screaming. <laughs> yeah, but to me, that makes sense. I can relate to this model. Good. Shall we move on? Yes. So this is a very famous model that's out there in a lot of the literature. Gibbs is a well-respected educationalist, done lots of work about how people learn, basically. So again, I think we're starting off with kind of description here. So this is more of a structure for, you know, how you would put together a piece of writing. Initially, you have to describe uh, what the situation was. You talk about how it felt. Now, that's a bit of a strange one. It doesn't feel very kind of scientific or objective, but that's one of the things that people often struggle with because of that. Evaluation. So that's the kind of analysis. What are you pulling out from that experience? And then you have a conclusion, so obviously summarising it, and then critically action plan. So when you're talking about using self-reflection as a developmental process, you have to have the action plan. So what is it that you want to improve on and how are you going to do that? So I guess all of these reflective models are cyclical, aren't they? 
And I guess they are designed. Actually, the first one wasn't. It was just like, what, so what, now what? And then it kind of finished there. And I guess for that reason, it's a little bit limiting. And the other reasons that you mentioned. But the other two are cyclical and they're very flexible. And I guess to some extent, you have to be because the cycles are merely a framework to apply, to challenge, to reflect upon and to adapt as necessary. And so throughout this episode, we have been kind of challenging the cycles a little bit as well. And it's, I think it's interesting about the feeling and how as a scientist, you you were kind of pointing out the discomfort with it because, you know, I studied English literature and so feeling is very much a part of the analysis that comes with it and the emotions being evoked. So I have no problems with feelings. But also, even among scientists, you know, for example, with midwives, healthcare practitioners and teachers, because all of them work with people, I think emotional connections and feelings are going to come into it, into those relationships and into those reflections quite a lot as well. And it does go beyond like the feeling of the individual, you know, mm. the person writing the reflection. Yeah, definitely. And to, you know, how it impacts on others. So I guess the other thing is this, the cycles are all basically focused on in terms of the individual kind of going through this journey, you know, in the process, but actually a lot of reflection will incorporate, like I said before, you know, if you're working with other people, it's going to kind of consider the situation, which involves circumstances, other people, whether it's colleagues, mentors, or, you know, if you're a teacher, it's your pupils, if you're a healthcare worker, it's your patients. So there is a lot more complexity than the cycles would imply. And so with my disruptive tendencies, one of the things I picked up on when, you know, we were kind of gathering all these cycles to put on the slides was that they've all been created by men. And although I don't know for certain, I'm kind of speculating that they've all been created by white men as well. Alex, do you know anything about this in particular? Just going by the names. So if anyone knows any differently, I'm quite happy to be corrected. No, no, I don't. Okay. And so I sort of feel that because we're meant to be decolonizing the curriculum at universities and thinking about diversity and other things, well, I kind of decided that we would create our own model or perhaps a metaphor, or perhaps yes. an analogy, you know, because we want to bring the literariness into it and the kind of more creative aspects of reflection. Shall we go into the next image? So I really love this image of a ripple because of the water droplet falling in the water. It could be AI generated, it could be heavily photoshopped, that doesn't matter. It's really about the feeling it, it it evokes in the viewer. And I love how it looks like a person who is creating this ripple effect. And to me, this is what reflective writing and you know reflective practices enable you to do. 
It enables you to think about your impact on your environment, on the people that you work with, on the people that you serve, and to consider the potential of your actions, of your experience. And, you know, what if you were to do things differently? How could you influence other people? So this this image is very focused on the individual. And as you can see from the ripple, it kind of just stops there. And some students do kind of think of reflective writing as very limiting because, you know, they're very immersed in the situation, you know, that Alex talked about earlier on. And so they, they tend to, I suppose, just focus on that and kind of not think about the broader context. And to me, I kind of see that as the, the sort of stress of the deadline getting to them a little bit. And perhaps this idea, you know, this impression that they kind of need to do the right thing. They need to stick to the assessment rubrics and just do what they're asked. And what I'm about to say is very much a part of the process, you know, that will that will make your reflective writing better, which is to focus also on the space of stillness on the surface of the water, because that is the untapped potential that the individual possesses. Um, and so by reflecting on, you know, what, what are the experiences that I haven't yet tapped into? What is the knowledge that I haven't yet tapped into? That is the expansiveness of your pers personal potential. And that is, so we will be offering frameworks and techniques in our workshop to talk about how you can ask better questions to improve the quality of your professional development of your career and of your life yeah okay so if the things we have said sound good to you you know if you would like to enjoy reflective writing enjoy the process and why wouldn't you like instead of having to slog through something for a one-off assignment Chances are the reason you're being asked to do a reflective assignment while you're at uni is because you will probably need to do it later on in your career as well. And if it doesn't seem like a kind of obvious trajectory on your course at the moment, well, Alex and I can assure you that it will be very useful later Definitely. on. In, even if no one asks, even if no one is asking you to do a reflection, it's a very useful thing for personal practice self-education and self-development so yeah and hopefully the things we shared in this podcast have been helpful and if they have do share with your friends so that you know more people can benefit from the from the things that we're talking about and also do subscribe because then when a new episode lands you'll be the first to know about it you won't miss you won't miss it thanks for your time and to your success thank you for listening Thank you for listening to the Weird Learning Podcast with your hosts, Tracy Dix and Alex Patel. Production team, Patricia Marie Solis and Kia Morant. Music by Defect Machine on Pixabay.